This morning I want to look at a passage that we've actually looked at before, Numbers chapter 16. I love this passage and I've spoken about this numerous times as a guest speaker in other places. This is Korah's rebellion. This is the biblical record of Korah's rebellion. And whenever I speak on it, it seems like people in the church, especially if I do this as a guest speaker, I don't know the politics of the churches I'm speaking in, but every time I've spoken on this as a guest speaker in somebody else's church, somebody has asked me, did the pastor ask you to do that message? Because that seems like it spoke right to the issue of what was going on in our church. And so I've kind of stayed away from this passage for several years here in Grace Life because I didn't want anybody to think that I was had a particular agenda. And so I want to say at the beginning, I don't. I'm speaking on this passage now because as far as I know, within our fellowship group and within our church, there is uh, total harmony and uh, no overt challenges to uh, the leadership that I'm aware of. But this is an important issue and an important thing to deal with, and so let's do it now while there's not an issue going on. And that's what I decided to do this morning. This was a landmark event in Israel's history, and it established once and for all in the national consciousness of Israel what God thinks of rebellion. Key passage of Scripture, and it's referred to even in the New Testament, Jude 11, where Jude describes heretics as those who perish in the rebellion of Korah. And uh, Jude reminds the church that rebellion against legitimate spiritual authority is despised by God in the church as much as it was in national Israel. And so there's an application of this passage to the church. And Jude also reminds us that the kind of rebellion Korah stirred up is what lies at the root of all false teaching, that sort of rebellious attitude. And so rebellion, or a rebellious attitude, inevitably corrupts sound doctrine and leads to spiritual decline among the people of God and lies at the root of most heresies. Heresies happen when somebody decides to rebel against authority and invents his own teaching. And over the years in the church, over the centuries in the church, there have been several major heresies that have cropped up always because of an attitude of rebellion. That's the inception. That's the beginning of heresy. And every time I've ever known anyone to lead a rebellion against legitimate spiritual authority, they have done so under the guise of reformation, in the name of correcting and strengthening the church. But true reformation is not ever and never has been in the history of the church carried out by means of rebellion. Rebellion weakens inevitably and never strengthens the church. And that was Jude's point when he likened the false teachers of his day to the rebels who followed Korah in Moses' day. And in the King James Bible, Jude 11 speaks of the gainsaying of Korah. That's the That's the expression they use in the King James days. And the word translated gainsaying there is the Greek word antilogia, which speaks of contradiction, rebellion, dispute. It literally means to speak against someone. And that's what Korah did. That is precisely what he is best remembered for. He spoke against Moses. He sowed the seeds of rebellion in Israel. And the mutiny that... Korah began was responsible, ultimately, for the destruction of many lives. 
It's a good lesson that we learn from this episode that rebellion is ultimately destructive. And it's personally destructive to the people who participate in it. And we also learn this lesson from Korah. God hates rebellion. God despises those who defy authority that he has established. And to challenge authority that's been established by God is tantamount to challenging God himself. Rebellion against God's chosen leaders is the same as rebellion against God. Now, some of you might even cringe to hear that because that's a particularly hard lesson for those of us who've been raised in the American culture to swallow. We live in a nation that was founded in the wake of a rebellion against England. We have enshrined rebellion as virtually a desirable thing. You watch the commercials, you watch television, and you see that that today, even on Saturday morning, young people's television, rebellion is often glorified and advocated to young children even. And it's because egalitarian values are so deeply ingrained in our thinking and in our culture that sometimes even we Christians forget that the God we worship rules with a rod of iron, and he despises those who scorn authority. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2, that there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Strong words, right? That's what God thinks of rebellion, and it's very clear in Scripture. And yet, rebellion holds a seemingly irresistible temptation, especially for people in a society like ours where rebels are often glorified and authority is despised. And Numbers 16, this chapter we're going to be looking at today, Numbers 16 is a kind of a prototype of the worst kind of rebellion. Here we see a man who pretends to represent truth, justice, equity, and he's standing against God-ordained authority, fomenting a rebellion that finally destroyed him and all who follow him. Galatians 6, verse 7 says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And in this incident, Korah and everyone who followed him reaped the bitter fruit of their own rebellion. And as we look at the text this morning, I want you to see the pattern that unfolds. This incident uh, is really the prototype for the worst kind of rebellion. Every church I have ever been a part of has seen this kind of rebellion at one time or another. It's a very common pattern. And nothing is more destructive to the community of God's people than this sort of overt mutiny against God-ordained authority, because this always comes under the pretense of righteousness. The rebels always pretend to defend what is right. They always act as if they have the moral high ground. But what their rebellion really does is sow doubt and confusion and distrust and division. And because it's a direct attack on authority that is ordained by God, it is a sin against God himself. Very serious sin. And in Korah's case, God punished the rebellion immediately, directly, and in really a dramatic fashion, as you'll see. God's attitude towards this sort of rebellion was 
by this incident, made clear early in Israel's history, and this became kind of a signpost to them, uh, an incident that they always remembered to tell them what God thinks of rebellion. And all the typical marks of sinful rebellion are present in the account of Korah. And I want to point them out to you as we go along. You've turned to Numbers 16. Let me just read the first three verses. We'll get through most of this chapter, I think, today. Here are the first three verses. Now, Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Now let me stop there and point out the first mark of this kind of rebellion, and it's this. The agitators are influential leaders. The agitators themselves are influential leaders. Korah was a Levite. He was a member of the priestly tribe. Not only that, but he was in a position to be one of that tribe's most influential leaders. This verse says his father was Izhar, son of Kohath. And according to Exodus 6, verses 18 through 21, Izhar's brother was Amram. And Amram was the father of Moses. And that made Korah Moses' cousin. He was first cousin to Moses. Look at verse 1 again. It also mentions Datham, Abiram, and On, whom it says are sons of Reuben. So you really have two factions here. Korah is an influential Levite on the one, one hand. And then you've got these other three guys, Dathan, Abiram, and On. They are leaders of the tribe of Reuben. They had evidently formed a confederacy to carry out this rebellion together. This didn't just spring up out of nothing. These guys had been talking and planning together. And here's an interesting fact. If you study the layout of Israel's camp, if you just look at a map of how the camp was laid out when they stopped and pitched their tents, they always did it in the same order. And Scripture describes that order for us. And if you if you just look at the layout of Israel's camp, Korah and the Kohathites were situated on the same side of the tabernacle as the Reubenites. They were neighbors. This whole rebellion undoubtedly hatched from a plot that grew out of idle conversations where these neighbors were venting their dissatisfactions to one another. And these were not merely obscure and insignificant people, but these were men who were leaders in their tribes. They were men of distinction and prominence. Men whose own leadership gifts were substantial. Very likely men with great natural leadership abilities. Men who already had the people's respect. And apparently they were also very good at recruiting other people to their cause. Because verse 2 says that by the time this rebellion broke out into the open, there were already 250 princes of the assembly involved. Men who were famous in the congregation. Men of renown. They had been able to get 250 men of renown siding with them in their cause before they ever went public with their complaint. And they sinfully used their influence as leaders 
to spread this rebellion throughout the multitudes of Israel. So that's the first mark of the typical sinful rebellion. The agitators are influential leaders. Here's a second characteristic to watch out for. Characteristic number two. Their complaint is believable. Their complaint is believable. Look again at verse three. They gathered themselves together against Moses and Aaron and said unto them, you take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy. This is their argument. Everybody's sanctified in Israel. We're all basically equal before the Lord. Every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So why do you lift yourselves up above the congregation of the Lord? In other words, they accused Moses of setting himself above the rest of the people. You know, you want all the power. You call all the shots. What makes you so special, Moses? Who made you to be a ruler and a judge over us? And they were simply calling for a little democracy here. They were complaining that it was unfair for Moses to be elevated above everyone else, when after all, no vote had ever been taken. No general consensus had ever been reached among the people about whether Moses was the most qualified man to lead the Israelites or not, right? They never voted on him, and all of that was true. There never had been a vote to ratify Moses' leadership. He wasn't elected to serve by the people. And they had never formally consented to his rule. And Korah's goal in making an issue out of this was to get the people to doubt whether Moses was indeed the best man for the job. Now, remember that Moses himself had told the Lord that he was slow of speech and maybe not the best person for the role of a spokesman and a political leader. Evidently, Korah had the personal charisma that Moses lacked because Korah had no trouble gaining a large following of people who were already ready to depose Moses and put Korah in his place. Now look carefully at the substance of the rebels' complaint. Verse 3, all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. This was a clear reference to some Very familiar biblical promises. Exodus 19, verse 6, where God says to all the Israelites, You shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46, the Lord says, I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And Numbers 35, verse 34, the Lord dwells among the children of Israel. So they had this, they were a priesthood as a nation. They were a nation of priests. They, they had this concept of the priesthood of the believer, as we do, right? They were virtually Baptistic, maybe even brethren in their thinking here. They, they started to think, all right, if we believe in the priesthood of the believer, then all believers should be equal. Nobody should be in charge. We should all be the same. That's pretty much how some of the Plymouth Brethren reason and run their congregations. And this was all based on vital promises that God made that every person in Israel could cling to. He dwelt among them. He was one of them. They were a kingdom of priests. It wasn't like the other nations where they had a dictatorial ruler who lorded it over them. And Moses was not put in that place in order to lord it over them. But the complaint of Korah was twisting those promises of God out of context. 
Promises like those did elevate every member of that nation to an incredible position of grace and privilege. Just as in the church, each of us enjoys before God an incredible place of grace and privilege. We are also a kingdom of priests. But those promises do not nullify God-ordained authority structures, either in Israel or in the church. Korah was misusing and twisting the promises of God in order to justify an unjustifiable rebellion against God-instituted authority. And for people lacking in discernment, just the fact that Korah referred to Scripture lent believability to his complaint against Moses and Aaron. They thought, well, he's got a point. That's how rebellion usually grows in the early stages. The claims and accusations of the rebels are made as believable as possible, usually by an appeal to the scriptures. That's exactly what Korah did. Now, look at verses 12 through 14. And take note of the complaint of the Reubenites who were part of this confederacy. Verse 12, And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, which said, We shall not come up. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us? Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that flows with milk and honey, or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Now notice, by the way, just incidentally, that the triumvirate of three rebels has already apparently been reduced to two. In verse 1, it was Dathan, Abiram, and On. Now it's just Dathan and Abiram. On, whoever he was, evidently dropped out of the rebellion. And uh, it's significant that he's missing from this point on. His name isn't mentioned. One ancient rabbinical tradition claimed that On quit the rebellion because his wife talked him out of opposing Moses. Now, there's no biblical evidence for that, of course, but it is an ancient tradition among the Jews. It's an interesting possibility. In any case, it does seem that from here on, On was no longer part of this confederacy, because from this point on, he's not even mentioned in the narrative. But notice, Dathan and Abiram bring this complaint against Moses. And this is their complaint. They said, Moses, you brought us up out of the land of Egypt, promising us a land of milk and honey. And now the whole nation's just wandering around in the wilderness aimlessly. Now, was that true? Well, strictly speaking, yes. But it wasn't the whole story. The rebellion of the people was responsible for keeping them in the wilderness in the first place. It wasn't any deficiency in the leadership of Moses, but the wandering was a judgment of God against the nation for the sin of rebellion against him. And now Dathan and Abiram are proposing more rebellion as a solution to the problem. Such is the deceitfulness of the human heart in captivity to sin. They had forgotten the real reason they were wandering aimlessly. Or more likely, they never took seriously the threat of divine judgment. But notice this. They were pretending to seek the good of the whole nation. Their complaint was believable. It seems reasonable to the natural mind. And they claimed to be concerned for the whole nation. The truth is that their real agenda was something far more selfish than that. And this is the third mark of the typical rebel. 
Number three, there is always a deeper agenda. There's always a deeper agenda. Korah's real concern was not the good of Israel, but it was his own personal status. Let's see if we can get to the heart of why he rebelled. Remember that the passing of the inheritance from one generation to another in Israel was generally guided by a principle known as the law of primogenitor. You've probably heard that expression before. The law of primogenitor said that the firstborn son was to receive a double portion of the family's inheritance. And the reason for that was in order to preserve the family's Riches. They had large families, and, and uh, when if you begin to divide the legacy up between the children, it just constantly gets divided and subdivided, and a family's wealth soon dissipates. But by the law of primogenitor, at least a double portion of the family's inheritance went to the eldest son, so that family lands and family businesses didn't have to be divided up completely every generation. It, it also gave the firstborn son a wonderful privilege, but it also placed on him a great responsibility. It, in effect, made the firstborn son the head of that clan, the head of that family, that extended family, in the place of the father when the father died. And the eldest son then inherited responsibility for the spiritual leadership and family welfare of the whole extended family. And yet, you see in Scripture several times as in the case of Ishmael and Isaac, as well as Jacob and Esau, God himself reversed the natural order and chose the younger over the elder, as it is his sovereign right to do. Well, here's the remarkable thing about Korah's rebellion. All the primary ringleaders in this rebellion may have felt that they were unfairly passed over when younger relatives were preferred. And you can see this if you look into the genealogy here and understand who these people were. Take Korah, for example. I mentioned that he and Moses were cousins. Both were descendants of Kohath, direct descendants. Exodus 6, verse 18, indicates that Kohath had three sons. The eldest was Amram, father of Moses and Aaron. Kohath's second son was Izhar, Korah's father. And the youngest son in Kohath's family was a man named Uzziel. Numbers 3 records the organization and the numbering of the Kohathites. Keep your finger in Numbers 16 and turn back to Numbers 3 for a minute. Numbers 3. I'm reading from verse 29. Here's the organization of this family. The families of the sons of Kohath shall pitch on the side of the tabernacle southward. And the chief of the house of the father of the families of the Kohathites shall be Elizaphan, the son of Uzziel. In other words, when a leader of the Kohathites was chosen, it was Korah's cousin from the youngest branch of the tribe. His father, Uzziel, was the youngest of Kohath's sons, and yet he was chosen to be head of this family. And so Korah undoubtedly felt he had been unfairly passed over. Furthermore, Korah was the firstborn son in his family, but Aaron, the younger son in Moses' family, was chosen over all the Levites as the head priest, high priest, over Israel. So Korah may have felt doubly slighted. In any case, it's clear from the nature of his 
rebellion that he felt he had as much right to authority and power in Israel as Moses. And he wanted to assert that right. Now, the Reubenites, the, this other faction who joined Korah in this rebellion, also had reason to feel that they had been unfairly snubbed. Do you remember who was the eldest son of Jacob? It was Reuben. And yet you may recall in Genesis 49, when Jacob was blessing his sons just before he died, instead of pronouncing a blessing on Reuben, he pronounced a curse. Listen to Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4. This is what he said. This is, this is Jacob supposedly blessing his sons, but here's what he says to Reuben. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. It's an interesting blessing to pass on your, to your son. He starts out, it sounds like he's, he's commending him. You're my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and so on. But when he gets around to what he wants to say, it's this. You're not going to excel. Because he had seen character flaws in Reuben. And he was right, actually. And the tribe of Reuben was therefore never the dominant tribe in Israel. Even though Reuben was the eldest of Jacob's sons. The fact that Moses, a Levite, had ascended to power instead of a Reubenite seems to have been particularly galling to the leaders of the tribe of Reuben. They resented this. Why should Moses, from a younger tribe, behead over them? And so Korah found among the Reubenites easy recruits for this mutiny because they all had a deeper agenda. Well, here's the fourth mark of this sort of rebellion, if you're taking these down. Here's number four. It spreads secretly before it goes public. It spreads secretly before it goes public. Korah and the Reubenites had obviously conspired quietly over some period of time before they ever brought this rebellion out in the open. A rebellion like this just doesn't spring full-grown into being. But what happened here was that influential people first shared their complaints with one another, and then having stirred up one another to become even more disgruntled, they began to infuse their discontent into the rank-and-file people of the tribes, and before long they had a large party of people who were feeding on one another's complaints. And they drew courage, all of them, from the fact that so many other people felt the same way. Have you ever heard this before? Well, I've talked to so-and-so, and they all feel the same way. And thus, the root of bitterness that had sprung up, first of all, in one or two individuals, soon infected multitudes. The complaint seemed believable. They even grounded their complaint in some of the biblical promises. You know, it just, it just all made sense to all of these people. And the more they shared their discontent, the more they reinforced one another's rebellion. Now, the truth is, if these men had ever had a legitimate complaint against Moses, what was their first responsibility? To go directly to him, to go privately to Moses himself. But it's obvious they didn't do that. By the time word of this rebellion reached Moses, there were already, according to verse 2, at least 250 influential leaders involved and a multitude of rank-and-file people under them. Only after he had whipped the people into this mutinous furor, only afterwards did Korah 
make his complaint known to Moses. And look at Moses' response, verse 4. When Moses heard it, he fell upon his face, and he spake unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his, and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. Now, that's kind of a gentle reply. Moses' reply to Korah is the model of humility and restraint. First, he falls on his face. And notice, in all that he says, he is, in essence, leaving it entirely up to the Lord to settle the differences between him and Korah. He takes no retaliatory action. He offers no insult. He simply says, tomorrow the Lord's going to show who are his. Here is the response of a truly godly man. Moses doesn't reply with an outburst of personal indignation. He doesn't debate with Korah. He doesn't defend himself even. He simply places the whole matter before the Lord, and he proposes a test, verse 6. This do, take you censers, that's a little container where you burn incense in, take you censers, Korah and all his company, and put fire therein, and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord doth choose, he shall be holy. And then he says, you take too much upon you you sons of Levi. See, that? remember, that was their complaint against him. Moses, you've taken too much on yourself. And he, in return, this is the only thing he says to answer them back, he says, you've taken too much on you. And he reminds the rebels that their uprising is a direct attack on God, not merely a slur against Moses, verse 8. And Moses said unto Korah, Here I pray you, you sons of Levi, Seemeth it but a small thing unto you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord, to stand before the congregation and to minister unto them, and he hath brought thee near to him, and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi, with thee, and seek ye the priesthood also? For which cause both thou and all thy company are gathered together against the Lord, and what is Aaron that ye murmur against him? Here's what he's saying. God had given them a task, the Levites. And it was no small task, standing before the congregation, ministering unto them in the presence of God. But they treated their own calling with contempt. It wasn't good enough for them. They acted as if it was a small thing to minister in the role God had assigned them to. Korah would be satisfied with nothing less than Aaron's job. And Moses saw that and said so. And that brings us to another mark of sinful rebellion. If you're taking notes, this is number five. Number five, the ungodliness of the rebels inevitably is manifest. Their ungodly motives and their ungodly actions will inevitably manifest themselves. You'll see that they are ungodly. I pointed out at the start uh, that this sort of rebellion always pretends to take the moral high ground, right? Rebels always claim to be defending justice or righting wrongs, but inevitably their response manifests its own ungodliness. You've seen this, I'm sure. People who claim they have been wronged think they are justified in bringing a lawsuit against a fellow believer in violation of God's clear word in 1 Corinthians 6. Disgruntled church members purposely spread strife and division that dishonors God. 
rebellious people always pretend they have the moral high ground. They will recite laundry lists of wrongs they claim they have suffered as if their suffering wrong justified their doing wrong. But inevitably, their motives will be made clear because what they want to do is wrong. And you'll see it as wrong. Scripture never grants tolerance to evildoers. Suffering wrong never entitles us to do wrong. David, you'll recall, was anointed by Samuel as the rightful king of Israel. And yet, Saul retained the throne and pursued David's life with a demon-possessed vengeance. No man was ever more right than David, and no man was ever more wrong than Saul. David was the rightful ruler. He was God's choice for the throne, a man after God's own heart. And yet, because he was a man after God's own heart, he knew that rebellion could never be the means by which he came to the throne. God never sanctions rebellion, even when the person in authority is completely in the wrong or even demon-possessed, the way Saul became. Defiance and insurrection are never justified because God-ordained authority is just that. God establishes it. And so Scripture never tolerates insurrection against that kind of authority anywhere under any circumstances. Now, notice how the Reubenites responded to Moses. I read verses 12 through 14 earlier, but I want you to look at those verses again and take special note of the sinful response of these men from the tribe of Reuben, verse 12. And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, which said, We will not come up, verse 14. Wilt thou put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. This is unbelievable insolence. This kind of open rebellion amounted to treason. Furthermore, remember that all of these men and all the people in Israel who were adults had been witnesses to the plagues God had sent against Pharaoh because of his defiance of Moses, right? Had they forgotten how God used Moses to deliver them from the hand of their oppressors? And yet notice that they are actually accusing Moses of wrongdoing because he brought them out of Egypt. It's twisted here, their complaint. They have forgotten the oppression they suffered in in Egypt. And now in verse 13, notice, they characterize Egypt as a land that flows with milk and honey. You see how they've turned the truth on its head? Egypt was a land of garlic and fish and onions and leeks and that sort of thing. Canaan was the land of milk and honey. But again, rebellion is the seedbed of lies and false doctrine. And so they turn the truth on its head without compunction, without any pang of conscience whatsoever. Now let's just follow the narrative, starting with verse 15. And notice what happens. Verse 15, And Moses was very wroth, very angry, and said unto the Lord, Respect not thou their offering. I have not taken one ass from them, neither have I hurt one of them. And so his first response is to plead his case to the Lord, pointing out that all this talk about Moses putting people's eyes out was without any legitimate grounds. Moses, you remember, Scripture says, was the meekest man on earth. He was not the type who was going to put anybody's eyes out. This was a false accusation and a mischaracterization of Moses. 
Verse 16, And Moses said unto Korah, Be thou and all thy company before the Lord, thou and they and Aaron, tomorrow. And take every man his censer, and put incense in them, and bring ye before the Lord every man his censer, 250 censers, thou also and Aaron, each of you his censer. In other words, he proposes a test. And the followers of Korah would offer incense to the Lord, and Aaron and his priests would do likewise. And the Lord would judge between them. This is the same kind of test Elijah made up on Mount Carmel. You know, you do an offering to your God, I'll do an offering to my God. And the God who answers by fire, let him be God. It's a similar kind of thing, although apparently Moses didn't completely explain what kind of sign from God he had in mind until the next day. Verse 18, and they took every man his censer. This is the next day. The big test is on. And they put fire in them and laid incense thereon and stood in the door of the tabernacle of the congregation with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. Now, by now, the Lord was so angry with Korah and the rebels that he was prepared to strike them dead on the spot. Verse 20, And the Lord spoke unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. So God is going to answer with fire, right? So Moses and Aaron intercede on behalf of the Israelites who had watched this rebellion form without joining it or without opposing it, just the neutral people. Verse 22, And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and shall thou be wroth with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the congregation, saying, Get you up from about the tents of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. In other words, move away from the the tents or booths or tabernacles where these men dwell and their families. Get away from them. And Moses went up, rose up, and went unto Dathan and Abiram. And the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. And so they got up from the tabernacle, that is the tent where Korah and Dathan and Abiram lived, on every side, and Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents, and their wives and their sons and their little children... And now Moses explained what the test would involve. Verse 28, and Moses said, Hereby shall you know that the Lord hath sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of mine own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord hath not sent me. But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth openeth her mouth and swalloweth them up, with all that appertain unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses, and all the men that appertained unto Korah, and all their goods, they and all that appertained unto them, they went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation." Wow, I mean, that must have been something to see, right? And all Israel that were around about them fled at the cry of them, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up also. And there came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense. Disastrous day for these rebels. And here is the sixth 
characteristic of sinful rebellion. Number six, it destroys undiscerning people. Korah destroyed not only himself, but a number of others on the periphery who didn't have the discernment to steer clear of this mutiny. That's how rebellion always works. Every sinful church faction I have ever witnessed has swept up people whom I love. They're dear people. From a human perspective, they are often well-meaning people with sweet dispositions and kind hearts. But people who lack the discernment to see that this sort of rebellion is never how God accomplishes His word and His will. And they're destroyed. And God's judgment against Korah was severe. This was an unprecedented thing. And that was the whole test. If God does a new thing, and he did, this is totally unprecedented, the ground opened up and swallowed him. Imagine if you were a witness to that kind of judgment. Wouldn't that not strike fear into your heart? And yet, the rebellion was not over yet. And here's one more remarkable characteristic of evil rebellion. Number seven, rebellion breeds more rebellion. Rebellion breeds more rebellion. The people of Israel witnessed what happened to Korah and his followers. They saw the ground open up. They saw the fire from heaven. How could you not be moved by that? How could you be not struck with terror at the idea of rebellion when something like that happens? You would think that that would put an end to rebellion forever in Israel. But it didn't. The fires were still smoking, and the ground was still settling when the next major rebellion broke out. Look at verse 36. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, that he take up the censers out of the burning, and scatter thou the fire yonder, for they are hallowed. The, the censers that these guys were holding evidently left on the ground smoking. And he says, pick those up because those are holy items. The censers of these sinners against their own souls, let them make them broad plates for a covering of the altar, for they offered them before the Lord, therefore they are hallowed. And they shall be a sign unto the children of Israel. And Eleazar the priest took the brazen censers wherewith they that were burnt had offered, and they were made broad plates for a covering of the altar, to be, to be a memorial unto the children of Israel, so that no stranger, which is not of the seed of Aaron, come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he be not as Korah and as his company, as the Lord said unto him by the hand of Moses. But on the morrow, all the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. The very next day. And it came to pass, when the congregation was gathered against Moses and against Aaron, that they looked toward the tabernacle of the congregation, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Now now notice, this is the majority of the people of Israel. Now they're reacting against Moses and Aaron. They're blaming them because these men who rebelled were destroyed. Again, here's proof that the majority is not always right. Here's the mass of Israel rising up against Moses and Aaron because they blamed them that these rebels were destroyed. And so the the glory of the Lord comes as a cloud over the tabernacle. Verse 43, And Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. Now, does this not sound reminiscent of what God did just before he judged 
Korah. He says, get away from them, because I'm going to destroy them. And Moses falls on his face. This is what he always does. He's an intercessor. He's a, he's a man of prayer. And he falls on his face. Verse 46, And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly unto the congregation and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from the Lord. The plague is begun. And Aaron took as Moses commanded. He takes a censer. He puts incense in it and fire. And he ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. You can see him just running with this censer, smoking incense, probably swinging it over his head, running in the midst of the congregation. And he stood, it says, verse 48, between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. The plague had already begun to break out. People were already dying when he ran with that censer and stopped the plague, stopped the hand of God. And notice this, verse 49. Now, they that died in the plague were 14,700. Beside them that died about the matter of Korah. And Aaron returned unto Moses unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the plague was stayed. Now, I want you to notice that even though Moses is always the target of the rebels' attacks, it is always Moses who stands between God and the people as their intercessor. That's the way it is with a godly man. And proof that just because people in mass rebel against a man doesn't mean he's the wrong one. Notice how prone these people were to misjudge Moses. I think we all have a sinful propensity to misjudge people who are in authority over us. I think that's a common fault of all humanity. And this is a great reminder, especially to young people, who are strongly tempted to rebel against their parents' authority. The fruits of that kind of rebellion are always bitter and destructive. Young people, you will ruin your entire life if you allow your character to be shaped in your teenage years by rebellion and defiance. I've seen it happen many times. In fact, I grew up in a generation when generational rebellion was glorified and promoted. And many of my high school friends have not been able to make it as adults because they've never learned to submit to authority. They never learned to be under the authority God placed them under even in their youth. This is also a great reminder to all of us, particularly as members of the church for which Christ died. Don't ever be tempted to rebel, to rebel against those whom God has placed in authority over you. Someone says, well, but don't we believe in the priesthood of the believer? Don't we believe God has made us all priests and kings in Christ? Yeah, but that was exactly Korah's claim, wasn't it? God had made Israel a kingdom of priests. Why couldn't the nation be run by democratic rule? Many people think the church should be run by a democratic rule, by majority vote. But that is not the pattern of church leadership set forth in the New Testament. God has ordered the church so that godly, gifted men are given the responsibility of leadership. It's not by majority vote. The doctrine of the priesthood of the believer does not overturn God's appointed structure of authority in the New Testament church, any more than it did in Old Testament Israel. That's why near the end of the epistle to the Hebrews, we looked at this just a few weeks ago, Hebrews 13, the writer of that 
letter admonished his readers with these words. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you. And submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Obey, he says. Submit. Our leaders will give account to God. There's no room in those words to justify a rebellion or an uprising of any kind against God-appointed leaders. Do people in authority ever misuse their authority? Yes. Are men of God ever wrong? Certainly. Moses himself was wrong on more than one occasion. Does it ever justify the sort of rebellion Korah tried to incite? No, it does not. It is never the right response to stir up people against duly appointed, God-ordained, spiritually qualified leaders and seek redress of wrongs by fomenting a Rebellion. That's not the way God works. And it has no place in the church. Notice in Scripture that every such rebellion is always condemned. There is not one example of a righteous rebellion anywhere in the Bible. No such thing exists. Rebellion is always ungodly. And God himself will deal with the wickedness of unrighteous rulers in his own time. He did it, for example, with Pharaoh. He punished even Moses when Moses sinned. And so we're not supposed to sit passively silent when our leaders sin, but the right response is the response Nathan took with David. He went to him privately and confronted him. He didn't organize a mutiny. Later, Absalom rebelled against David, but God judged him severely for that. Rebellion, Scripture says, is like the sin of witchcraft. 1 Samuel 15, 23. That's a significant statement, isn't it? Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. It suggests that rebellion is as overtly satanic as the black arts. And that ought to give us reason to pause and think carefully before we are tempted to rebel, even if you have convinced yourself that by rebelling you are defending some high moral principle. It cannot be. Rebellion is never the high road morally. It may be the way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof, Scripture says, are the ways of death. Let's pray. Lord, what a sobering reminder this is to us of our duty before you to submit and respond and respect the authority that you've placed over us. May we do that with a full heart, Lord. We recognize that earthly authority is not always right. There comes a time when we have to obey God rather than men, but that never calls for an organized mutiny or a rebellion. Keep our hearts from that kind of disobedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.